Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to New Human Living Radio Show, bringing you powerful interviews to awaken the power in you. Learn more at newhumanliving.com. And now your host, Les Jensen. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm so glad you chose to join us. The scheduled show tonight is Africa's Child and our guest is Maria Nambu. The, uh, the curious thing about the transformation of our human condition is the individual story behind it. The uh, uh, the many many guests we've had on the show that have gone through a personal transformation, and that's more or less what this show uh, the the theme of this show is about the new human living radio show, the transformation of human consciousness. Or perhaps you could phrase it another way, the power of human consciousness. And what I've really liked is the hundreds of episodes, the, uh, really, really all walks of life. We have, we have interviewed about every flavor of uh, human persona as it relates to the transformation of our human condition, either personally or collectively. And... Uh, that's what I like about the show tonight. The uh, um, the story of Na- Nambu's uh, transformation um, from really from uh, very early on in her uh, childhood um, up to the current day. Um, it's uh, she has quite a story to tell, and I says I suggest to you, the listener, that. You have the potential to transform your life always and forever. And I know that can seem like a real blanket statement, always and forever. What do you mean? I mean, whoop-de-doo, that sounds like a cliche. But if you think about it, you're a soul personified. You're a, you're a soul that somehow got shoehorned into a physical body. And... The day you were born, you didn't have an ego. You didn't have an attitude. You, um, you were void of a, of a stance, of a political or social preference. And, and you grew into the person you are today. And the reason I bring up the ego is that the ego is... Um, it, it weighs and measures everything based on its experience, based on its environment. But your soul, your soul has an infinite, an, an endless well of inspiration, of potential, if you will. And it's really quite rare for people to hone in and dial into their own soul in a moment-by-moment basis. Certainly their soul will inspire them to, to take a particular trajectory through their life. But to teach your ego to slow down, slow down, and be still and, and tune in to that infinite well of inspiration moment-by-moment moment as you go throughout the day, that's when your soul can have some sway in your everyday life. So I think it's time we can get to tonight's show. Um, again, the topic tonight is Africa's Child, and our guest tonight is Nambu, uh, Maria Nambu, and her website is Maria Nambu, M-A-R-I-A-N-H-A-M-B-U.com. She was born in Tanzania, East Africa, she was raised by German missionary nuns at an orphanage for mixed-race children. Throughout the hardship and mixed blessings of her childhood, Nambu sustained her spirit through dance. I love that. And kept alive her dream, her dream of further education. 
she was able to fulfill that dream in the United States where she attended college, became a teacher, and eventually married and raised two children. Her passion for African dance, art, and culture inspired her to create and teach the African dance workout, Aerobics with Soul. I like that. And she fuels her work as an unofficial cultural ambassador. In that role, she gives African dance presentations and speaks about Africa nationally and internationally. Join me in welcoming Nambu to the show. Nambu, I'm so delighted to have you on the show tonight. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So you've, you've come through quite a journey to get where you are today. I mean, to, st to start your life in an orphanage for mixed-race children, a, actually a, a German missionary-run orphanage, in East Africa, and now you're in the United States um, as a cultural ambassador. Can you give us a, a, an overview of, of the highlights of that journey? Hmm. Yes, I, I would be happy to. I have written about my journey in, uh, in, in a trilogy called the Dancing Soul Trilogy. Uh, Africa's Child, America's Daughter, and Drum Beats, Heart Beats. You know, I've, I have always felt as, a, as, as an adult, you know, after I had settled and found some peace uh, that I needed to tell my story, that this, my story wanted to be told. And I was thinking there were so many of us mixed-race children at the orphanage that somebody would sooner or later write the story. But nobody did. So I felt I was spared I was left to tell the story, and uh, I took it upon myself. It was a very hard endeavor, but I'm, I am glad I did because it gave me a chance to, to look at my life almost objectively, which I had always looked at it very subjectively because I had no other choice. But this way I could put it out there and look at it and see what really happened and what influenced me and what helped me survive and 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 what show showed me the way to to being myself and to fulfill myself in spite of having no parents, no family, and no one. So this orphanage was started in a place called Kifungilo in Tanzania in the Usambara Mountains. They were German Catholic Precious Blood Sisters. Uh, they felt sorry for the plight of mixed-race children because at that time, you know, it was a while back, I was born in 43, so um, the African, African, the African society did not accept mixed-race children very well. Uh, the mothers who had us very often were ashamed of us, or they took us and kept us in the village, and, and we were, some of us were hidden, and some of us could live and die without even seeing the sun or feeling the rain. Or I, I always think about that, and I'm just very happy that I got spared. I was not one of them. And usually the, the European or the white man who fathered us, whether they were missionaries, tourists, government officials, colonizers, they, you know, they didn't even acknowledge us. So we had a tough time. So th this order of Precious Blood Sisters took us you know, came to the to start this orphanage for us, and so word got, got out around the country, and the children came in every shape and size and every age. Some were 20, some were 25, some were 18, some were seven, some were five. I was brought there when I was only three days old, so my entire life was at the orphanage, and. Um, Life over there was quite difficult in, in many ways. The bigger girls who were there took care of the little girls, you know, took care of our grooming and feeding us and, and everything. Uh, and very often they were extremely abusive. They abused us in every way you, you can imagine, physically, emotionally, psychologically, sexually. We had to... We were beaten very often, and we didn't even know why. We, we were just disciplined. Most of the nuns were good, and they, they were there, and we were grateful. They were there to take care of us. But there were a few who were very, very cruel. Uh, for as long as I can remember, 
I was always looking for my mother. I don't know why I never looked for my father. <laughs> I always looked for my mother. And being a, a Catholic orphanage, uh, the book begins with me kneeling at Christmas time in front of the nativity, praying to baby Jesus, asking baby Jesus, you know, to, to find my mother. And I kept having a conversation with him all the time. I somehow within me believed that he heard me and he was talking back to me. And uh, so I remember him telling me oh, all the time that, no, we, yeah, you will have a mother one day, and me wondering how far away is one day, and um, not understanding everything. I, I, I always felt that there was something that I, I could achieve, that I could, I could become, that I could, that I had to, to go out there and believe in myself and really go and find, you know, who I am and, and where I came from and who my mother was. So I, I searched around, you know. I, I went to the, the orphanage was surrounded by, by uh, African tribe and African villages, and I would, would sneak into the village when I heard drumming and I heard dancing. You know, we were put to bed, but my heart was just beating when I heard the drum. And every so often I would sneak out and go and dance with the Africans, you know, in the village. And one day it occurred to me, probably one of those women could be my mother. I must have been about four or five. And I, there were three old women. They were very old. But I thought, you know, I didn't know anything. I, I, you know, I was a child. So I thought one of them would be my mother. So I asked them individually, are you my mother? Are you, you my mother? No answer. And the third one, are you my mother? There was no answer. Then suddenly, all of a sudden, all three of them in unison said, we are all your mother. I've never forgotten that moment. It was a real turning point. There was something in that statement that connected me to what I was searching for. I was, I was searching to belong. I was searching to be part of this women, of this village, and, and of the universe, and whatever it was that kept us together. I was searching to belong, and I was feeling our, our humanity. There was something within me that brought me within me to feel my power, or to feel my soul, or to feel my divinity, what made me different from a, <coughs> excuse me, from a tree or from a rock. So I went back up, you know, to, to the orphanage, and I, I realized that I was alone. I didn't have a family. I, I really felt I belonged to no one, except I felt I belonged to the spirit, to this soul whom I called God. Other people might call other things, but I just felt I belonged to God, and where he or she or it lived was, was me, was within me. And um, so I was, as a child, I was fat. You know, so they called me Fat Mary, and um, I really detested that name. So I cried every time they called me Fat Mary. Uh, so that day, you know, it, it, I had such big movement within me that I decided, you know what, I am I'm going to take that name, Fat Mary, that detested name, and make Fat Mary my friend. Well, Fat Mary was actually me. She was. She was not an imaginary friend. She she was like like my my twin. She was me. She was what I was feeling. She she was who I was. She was the part of me that uh, that people could not see unless I revealed it to them. You know, when you, you walk down the street, you'll meet a person and you can see the color of their hair, their eyes, their clothing, what they're wearing, and and that's what you see. But you really do not know them. So. I created this Fat Mary who, who was me, who knew me more than anybody else. And when I was beaten and when life was tough, I went to Fat Mary. She became my counselor and my consoler. So she, she was the divine part of me. She, she was the soul. She was the person that I believe or whatever it was within me that, that left me or that when I died. I, I didn't know what it was, what to call it, but I felt that was why I was living. That's what made me a human being and made me a very important child, you know, of the universe and child, you know, of God. So, 
that Mary and I have solved many problems in our childhood. I always talk to her, and she's been a part of me my whole life, even to even here right now. Every time anything happens, I go within me. So I have I have, I learned from, from from being a child since I was a child, you know that I I kind of was I I could be in charge of what I wanted or in charge of my happiness. Maybe I did not think in such abstract philosophical terms, but I, I felt a power that, that I had that, that directed me, that watched over me, that helped me deal you know, with everything. And when I came to America, very often I, I felt that very, I, people did not know or did not respect the power that they had within them. And because I had that, I made, I, I made up my mind that day when I decided to create my real Fat Mary that I could talk to and all, I also decided then and there that I was always going to love myself unconditionally. And, and, and having myself in that way and loving myself in that way, I, I have found out over the years has been one of the most important survival instincts that I have had, and they have brought me all the way here because I felt between me loving myself and, and having fat married, I, I, I would be fine. Once you, in the world, I think what you have to have the most is yourself. You have to value yourself. If you do not really know yourself, you, you, you cannot give, you know, you cannot give what you do not have. So that discovery really helped me in all the other difficulties that I've had in my life. Well, your story is very powerful. And, I mean, you talk about uh, being dropped off at the orphanage at the age of three, uh, three days. And, yeah. And without a, a, a single figure, person, persona in your life as a, as a parent that's there 24/7 every day every, every year in your life you're you're literally in an orphanage and it's a very hostile and caustic environment and yet here you are talking to us and you're talking about love of yourself you're talking about believing in yourself knowing who you are um th- that's such a powerful story right off the top uh, I know a lot of people have a hard time feeling connected to society, and they're perhaps graduated from college and out living on their own, and, and they look at the news, they look at the media, and they don't really identify with any of the um, uh, paradigms, if you will, or the story that the media is telling them, and they and they don't connect. Uh, there's a... There's a serious issue with uh, depression and suicide with young people. And you're mm-hmm. talking about be, uh, going through that kind of a situation of not feeling connected, not feeling grounded, if you will. I don't want to put words in your mouth. And and yet through that, you were able to kind of see through the the – the hardship and the anguish and the pain and the suffering and and now you're here sharing such a powerful story i i have to tell you um that's a that's a very powerful uh life path that you've been on you know i'm always very surprised when 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 people tell me something to that effect uh because i never I don't know. I didn't. I've never looked at it as being extraordinary. As I got older and I, I learned more about life and about the, the, the haves and the have-nots. You know, the rich nations and the poor nations. I, I'm starting to understand why me at that point, having nothing and no one in my life, I still survived and and how I developed those survival tools to get me you know, from there to here. And I'm always as I said, surprised and humbled and everything when people say, you know, that was really unique, like you just said, and and I'm starting to see that it was. But I think it was, I, I, I had no choice. People will say, how could you, how did you know that when you were so young? How, you know, because that, that is really deep. How did you know that? And uh, the only thing I can say, I don't know if I, I was that deep in any sense of the word. Obviously, I wasn't at that age, but 
but I think it was a necessity. You know, they say necessity is the mother of, of invention. After I, I, real, I had my fat Mary and I decided to really love myself, I went to that place very, very often. And it was by necessity I, that, that I created this place, that I created, you know, fat Mary. So I had no choice. I couldn't go to anybody else for love and understanding. Being a mixed-race kid, we were called every name in the book. I mean, everything. And, and we, were, we were just like we were no good. Many Africans, for some reason, thought that we thought we were better than them because our skin was lighter. But that's a you know a residue from colonial times when when they preached you know that white was better, and and they carried that on. So they felt jealous of us. They thought we were better, but we did not. We could not have thought we were better than them because of how we were, you know, we were treated. So uh, I knew that I, I once I had myself, I'd be okay. But I also knew there was some drive within me that I needed, I wanted to leave the orphanage. I had no idea about the world out there. If you read the book, you'll see the first time we saw a car, the first time I drove in, I rode in a car. I mean, I don't, I don't know how old I was the first time I had a pair of shoes, you know. And, but I always, I knew there was a world out there, and uh, I didn't know where and how far, and I wanted to leave the orphanage. And I knew I couldn't leave the orphanage without an education. They educated us only up to the fourth grade. So I, I, I really felt there had to be more than that. But I was lucky later on, because those days they didn't educate women. I, I was able to go to another school very far away from uh, an, an African school, up to the, from the fifth to the eighth grade, but it, they were all boarding schools, and then we went back to the orphanage for vacation. You know, if I thought life was hard at the orphanage, life at this African school for us mixed-race children was even worse. It was like jumping from the frying pan into the fire. We were counting the days until we went back to the orphanage. There were only five of us in mixed-race children who who went to this African school, and there were like, how many? 500 Africans. So we really stood out and it was very hard. So we, but for us, we, we went back to the orphanage and I realized that, you know, no matter how hard life was over there, it, it was our home and we were wanted there. And, and that was something I learned because everything is really kind of relative. And sometimes in your life, things are very, very difficult and you cannot explain them. But they, Somehow they, they, they are for you, to, to help you, to guide you, and to get you to the next phase of, of, of discovery. Um, I was, again, lucky when I finished the eighth grade, the first secondary school for, for girls in the whole country, you know, opened up, and it was run by American Mary Knoll sisters. They were also Catholic, and they were from New York. They were just like night and day from the German the German nuns, you know, how they looked at us, uh, what they taught us. Uh, I remember in, in the orphanage very often when we were little, we were forbidden to go and dance the African or the pagan way, but I used to just sneak and, and dance on my, because dancing always, always fulfilled me, always made me happy. So uh, we, I, we were in, in this American school, and I remember we always, at the orphanage, you know, we were t uh, taught the strict Catholicism. We had to go to confession, you know, every Friday. We had to go to church every day, and we had to go and ask penance. As soon as you entered the church, you, were, you know, you had to ask God for forgiveness, and you are a sinner. And I used to ask so many questions. I, could, I used to say, I have no sins to forgive. I'm not a sinner. And, of course, I would be beaten every single time I asked any question like that. I would be beaten, so I still continued to ask questions, and I was called stupid and fat, and I was stupid supposedly because I was asking so many questions because nobody, you know, was that stupid to ask those questions, even though no one really had the answers. But in the American, American school, you know, they, you know, they made me feel like religion could be something good and, and that God loved me the way I am, and and I didn't, you know, I would confess my sins, but whether I, I sinned or not, I felt that I felt some comfort. I felt a connection to that 
inner me, the divine part in me, when I went to church, all of a sudden it felt good. I could identify with it because I already knew it. It's just that in my outside world at the orphanage, I, didn't, I never felt it. I always felt it only inside. So in this American school, when I was uh, 12, uh, in 12th grade, a lay teacher from America who was only 23 volunteered a year of her life to come and teach at, uh, at this secondary school for the American nuns. And she was my English teacher. She taught me oral English. And uh, there were four of us who were chosen to take the Cambridge oral English exam in addition to the regular English exam. And she was, you know, tutoring us. She would, she would always make us talk. Of course, in uh, oral English, we had to tell our story. The other girls would tell their stories. They were brought, you know, they had their their, their father was a teacher, their their mother was a farmer, and they did this, and they had so many brothers and sisters, and this is what they did to play, and all. They told their stories of their villages and all. And every time she came to me, I would always say. Uh, I have no parents. I, I, I'm, I was raised in an orphanage. The orphanage is my home. That's all I said because it was the truth. There was nothing else. So somehow she took it upon herself to, to do some research and, and, and check me out, and she contacted the orphanage. And I don't know how, you know, what mountains she moved, but she ended up adopting me and bringing me to America. I was 19. She was 23. She was you know, just out of, hardly out of adolescence herself. And I've thought about that very often, how or why or why did, could she do it, this young woman? You know, and what the, only, the only reason I personally can give is that I, I, I think she saw me with her heart. She did not see me with her mind or with her brain. She just felt you know your brain is always editing things telling you oh no you can't do that look at her she's a fully grown african woman who does who doesn't speak english well doesn't know anything about america she'll be an embarrassment there's so many reasons that reasons that anybody really who thought it through would say this might be an impossibility but i don't think she went there she just saw a need and i think she herself was 13 years old when her mother passed away and one day she said to me, you know, years later after we're in America, she said to me, I think really why I did it is I, I couldn't quite put it into words then, but she, she said she said she didn't, ha- you know, she really, she, she couldn't have a mother. She didn't have a mother because her mother died when she was so young. So she thought if I can't have a mother, maybe I could be a mother. And, and that's what propelled her. You know, and that's what made her take me and bring me to America and give me the chance of a lifetime to really develop myself and to become the person I have become. Well, that, that really changed your life, really. I mean, for her to adopt you and bring you to the United States. You know, in the in the context of being in a sense of struggle at a very early age or, or I mean, um, there's so many countries that have really destitute populations that are that are that have been abused in so many ways that uh, there's a large percentage of the people that have just surrendered and and they've lost the spark of life. They've they're destitute. They're they're poor. They're they're barely getting by. They they don't have the education. They don't have the the resources to take care of themselves, and they're living in um, extreme poverty. And um, you've talked about having this this inner drive, this inner spark. From my perspective, that you, you talk about always going inside and 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 connecting inside, and and that was a beacon, perhaps, for you to to move through all these struggles. So let's, let's uh, take it a step farther because um, I know you have a passion for African dance. Uh, we talked a few days ago uh, as a pre-show chat for this show, and we both really resonate with the notion of dance. You talked about sneaking out of the orphanage when you would hear the, the music. And um, when we talked the other day, you 
you talked about how it uh, stirred you at a at a very deep level inside. So here you've here you've gone through this process, and now you've turned around, you've written books, and you've created the African Dance Workout Aerobics with Soul. Share with us um, your experience with dance and what it means to you. Yes. Uh, when I, you know, think about my childhood, certain certain things really stand out. Most of uh, the first one is me always always praying and always looking looking for my mother, and uh, and the next one was was again me discovering my divine self, you know, and Fat Mary. And then I also, I always love, for some reason, I love to dance. Any kind, I don't know what happened or where it came from. I would hear the drumming, and I would start feeling happy. I would just feel really good, and my feet would start moving and all. And like I said, I would go and, and dance with the Africans. And we were actually, like I said, forbidden to quite dance, to dance like that. It, they told us, the nuns told us if we wanted to dance, we, you know, we could learn the German waltz which is what they taught us. So we, we did the German walls. But I didn't like it because I couldn't shake my hips and I couldn't do all sorts of other things and I couldn't fully express the dance did not come from within me. The reason I think I like to dance, there was so much so much pain and trauma in my my day-to-day life that that uh, I, I just danced. Whenever I heard, heard any music, it was like my spirit is telling me, go there, you need that, go there right now. And I would go you know, to dance, or I would start dancing. In the orphanage, I used to go and hide in the toilets. You know, the toilets were fire went and closed the door and danced all by myself, you know, just and clap and do. I was just so happy uh, because I, I just realized when I watched the Africans dancing, I realized uh, very early that the way they danced, you know, except for the ritual dances, whenever they dance for their everyday living and they dance doing every single thing, even when they're hoeing in the field, they dance, they were singing. You know, I just, it occurred to me when I danced with them, I, I didn't have to worry. There was no right way to dance. There was there was only the dance, and there was something very magical and very spiritual and very liberating and just so, so joyful. And also I realized that for me to feel that I, it had to come from within me. I had to express maybe all those emotions, you know, the pain, the sorrow, but also also the joy because I, I felt joy in, in dancing. There were times that we sang and I was happy when I was playing with my little friends. I would also be happy. It was a way for me for, for me to express my emotions, I mean, with no filters, to just go there and dance and, and bring to the dance what I had and take from the other dancers what I needed, what they gave me. And I, I just felt like whenever I'm thinking of joy, I always think of me dancing without a care in the world. And it paid, played such a big role in my life that when I came to America and um, – Actually, I had, uh, with my son, who is now 42, I had gained 60 pounds. And at, at that time, I remember in, in 81, uh, there was this fitness craze, this aerobics dance craze. And so I went to this dance studio, the aerobics studios, to, 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 to exercise. And I remember hating every moment of it. I just could not believe it was dance because we were all told what to do, how to do. And, you know, I decided one more, you know, sit up, one more leg lift. I, I, it, I, there had to be something better. There just had to be something better. So I went home. I put on my old vinyls of African songs, and I just danced by myself. And one day some people came over and watched me just dance so carefree and everything they said to me you should really teach us how to dance that way I looked at them like there's no way they're crazy you know that I cannot teach you to do that you it comes from you you have to know how or you you I, I didn't think I could so but they said no you really should so I took uh I took some courses from the American Council of Fitness and I got certified from them and I I learned to from them what was safe and what I could or could not do and what how to teach. I had a warm up and aerobic section and a cool down. So I put my own class together using only African music and African movements. And uh, I invited some people first, and then after that I decided to invite some other people. And one day I I. I said to myself, I, I was wondering again, because sometimes I often, between me and Fat Mary, always analyze why I do what I do. 
So I was wondering why why did I feel this need? And I felt absolutely felt this need to share this joy that I have within me with other people. I looked around me in America, and there were so many people who who had done so much for me, from Kathy on down, so much kindness, and 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 I I, I participated in so much that America had to offer me, offer me, and I was so so very grateful for everything. And I always felt I really should do something. I should give something back. What can I give? For a long time, I felt there was nothing I could I could give. You know. Uh, and and then one day it occurred to me when I was doing this that this is what I could give. I could give this because it was me. It was a part of me. It was coming from my heart. I wanted to share the joy, the the magic, the spontaneity, the freedom, the liberation, the excitement, the the movement, the space. I wanted to share everything that I got when I was dancing. Because when I put all of those things together, the the result is pure joy. And and I thought I could share that, you know, with Americans. At first, I did not know if I could, but I, I, I think I have been able to. So I created my workout. I six workout at 16 different levels. I, I trained instructors, and and aerobics with soul is, is not a, a program that you can franchise. I have to train every teacher individually, and the people who are teaching, who become teachers have to have what it takes, you know, they, they have to love it, number one, they have to love to share what they have, not everybody taking the class has to have rhythm or have, no, I always tell people to just send their mind on vacation and let their body move, and if they think they're dancing, they're dancing, but for the teachers, I wanted them to to share the dance from within, from who they were, and to, again, to bring to the class what they had to offer, and they would always be refilled by what the people in class gave back to them. So I, I have done that now, and I've been teaching for many years, and I still do it myself, and I, I am continuing to, to train instructors. It has brought so much joy to my life, and I, I hopefully I can dance you know, all the way to my grave. <laughs> well, I like how you uh, – emphasize the the result of the dance as being joy i mean just joy simple joy and yes it joy is such a um an element of our human condition that for many many people are it's lacking it's just it doesn't exist in their life i, I mean if you if you um Watch the the news. Watch the media. You come home from work, and you and you fret and worry and pace around the house or sit on the couch. There's um, uh, there's no room for uh, transformation. Perhaps there's no room for um, introducing a new paradigm per se. And and certainly you can read a book and be transformed. Certainly you can um, um, have personal epiphanies, but I've, I, I've shared the same passion for dance, um, and for me, it's, um, it's like washing yourself of, of your past in the moment when you go into, the kind I like is a static dance where there is no form, you can do it any which way that you want. But there's there's kind of a transcendence of your condition, regardless of what the condition is. You're you're it's like you're stepping out of your story. You're stepping out of your uh, situation, and and you just capitulate or surrender to the the impulse or desire from within you, and and then when you're done with the dance and you go back to your life, I think it. Birth gives birth to this, um, like I don't know what to call it, a virgin perspective. You see your life in a in a more um, authentic way, if you will. Does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> yes, I think it makes sense because for me, you know, after I dance, it's uh, there's a, a real transformation every time. You know, I just see things very, very differently, and I lift. I'm I'm really lifted. I just 
I just have no more cares because you know the thing for me about dancing it's so it's so present you you have and we for, so often forget to be present to whatever it is that we are doing you know but if you're dancing and the dancing is coming from within you you have to be very very present and when you're present and you look at your surroundings you really see the world uh, you know very differently you see it kind of how it is and how it relates to you and how you relate to it and so it is like a every time i stop dancing and i go out it's just like a fresh beginning you know something something again i've taken care of myself i have felt like that joy you know very often people i've seen when they dance here they'll say oh i cannot do that you you africans you dance as though you you have no bones you know and i there's no way i can do i i just telling them no when i dance i'm not looking for perfection i'm just looking to express right. myself and i i'm 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 just looking for the joy it's like a self healing that that has helped me since I was a child, and I think it really took me to all the different stages. You know, after I danced, I, I was just ready to face the next day. I was ready to face the next year, because I was like I was cleansed, and I was uh, the world opened up for me, and I could see lots more possibilities. So I've I've always been grateful. I don't know where I got it from, but it was a, one of those gifts that I. I was given as a child, and I, I developed it simply by doing it, by being the dance myself, not and not really caring how what, how I looked or what people would say. But uh, now, when I canned it, so to speak, so that I had to to train people to to dance in that way, to go to that place and express themselves, that was difficult. But I think I really managed to do it, but I mostly managed to find people who see dance the way I see it, and then it is easy for them to capture that, that spirit and to produce the, the joy that always comes from, from dance. Right. Well, what a, what a I think, uh, a very powerful thing to do, to bring African dance into a, into a platform that can be shared and taught. Um, aerobics with soul is is such a beautiful result, if you will, of your life. Speaking of results, let's talk about your books. Now you've got you've written a trilogy of three books. The first book is called Africa's Child. The second book is called America's Daughter, and the third book is called Drum Beats, Heartbeats. Can can you tell us what each book covers? Let's start with the first book, Africa's Child. Yes, Africa's Child is the first 19 years of my life. And so much happens over there. You know, as you know, we've already talked about my situation and all, but a lot happens there. And then in book in book two, America's Daughter starts with Kathy and I arriving in New York. And of course, I'm at the airport, and I'm looking everywhere for the for the Statue of Liberty, because the, uh, the uh, my American teachers said everybody coming to America, the, the Statue of Liberty is there to welcome them and to greet them. I took it literally, and I just was looking everywhere. You know, I couldn't see. I thought, well, maybe it was not a statue. Maybe it would be a real person. And I was so surprised when you know it was way out there. I had to actually see it from, you know, from the plane. So. Uh, book two is my life in America, and it, it covers a lot. It it was a, there was a lot of culture shock, and and one of the biggest culture shocks I had. Uh, there's a chapter in book two which is called Becoming Black, and uh, I was so shocked that people here referred to me or looked at me as a black American. I, it took me a while to catch on. Uh, because in college, very often, you know, it was in, this was the 60s. I came here in 63. So until I was graduating in college during the 60s, there was lots, you know, the civil rights movement was in, it was in full force, and there was lots happening here and there and everywhere. There were lots of discussions, discussions in the classroom. And uh, every time anything would come up, people would look at me like I should explain, you know, and, and I would look right back at them. I could hardly speak English myself. And and uh, once someone turned around to me, I was sitting in the back and said, what do you people want anyway? Well, I turned around and I was looking for you people. And I did, 
And when I turned back, all eyes were on me, so it occurred to me that I was you people. And I knew almost nothing about the African-American culture. So I took it upon myself to really learn. Uh, we had learned nothing in Africa. We mostly learned the history of England, and, and we didn't learn anything about our own history and our own geography. You know, So I, I took it upon myself to learn about African-American culture, and I was surprised to find out I had never even heard of slavery in all of my education in Africa. And, um, and so I learned a lot. What I found out in the process, the, the flip side of the coin, you know, with, with, when you come to America, like the Jim Crow laws say that if you are one-eighth, you know, black, and or the rest of you is white, you're, you're black. So me being half and half, of course I was considered black. So the, the good thing about that was that for once I really felt I belonged. In America, I was black, and that gave me a lot of comfort, you know, that I, I finally am, you know, I belong to the people, the blacks are my people now, and, and I enjoyed it. But it took me a long time to understand how a person looking at me would, would expect me to understand and to explain to them what, what, what African Americans are thinking and what they are doing, because... And then I realized I was one of very few, not even a handful of black students in this huge college, you know. So I was supposed to represent them and to answer a lot of these questions. And to me, it didn't make sense at all because as soon as I opened my mouth, they would say to me, well, well where are you from? But somehow, before they asked me a question, they already knew everything about me. They knew I was black and with everything else that come with that description in America. And I realized very early that when people saw me here, in general, of course, they first saw a black person and then they saw me. And, uh, and in my heart, I always felt African. But in America, I functioned as an African-American, and it brought me lots, as I said, lots of joy, but also a lot of confusion because I, I knew very, very little about their, about their culture. But what happened in the, in the second book, for sure, that was major, is my birth mother showed up, and she showed up when I was 36. And I remember going to meet her. You know, she came from the airport. She um, I was looking for, uh, she told, she wrote Kathy and told Kathy that she was coming to, you know, that she was my birth mother and she would like to meet me. We invited her over. She described herself, so she's coming off the plane and we are all looking for what she's wearing and I'm still looking. I didn't find anybody. I didn't see anybody, so I thought maybe she changed her mind. And when I turned around, I saw Kathy talking to this white lady. I was so shocked to find out that my mother was white because my entire childhood I was I was praying for my African mother, and and I I was truly shocked. Not only was she white, she was American. So uh, I, you know she so she came into into my life, and then what she uh, what she did also she uh, introduced me to my half brother. He was all white. He was eight years older than me. My my birth mother and her husband, of course, were Americans. They were missionaries in, in Tanzania, and they took Larry, my brother, there, and he was brought up there until he finished secondary school and came here to college. So my mother introduced me to, to him, and Larry was really just the most wonderful brother anybody could ever want. Our mother was very different, was very... She was just, uh, I don't know, I always like to say I'm so glad I met my brother because he was every single thing that our mother wasn't. My mother, I think, came to look me up on her terms, and I still don't understand why, because she didn't want me when I asked her if I could call her mom. She said no. And uh, she just, she was just not very aloof. She was ashamed of me very often. She she wanted Kathy and me to go, and Kathy and her husband to go and visit them, but she shouldn't bring me because because what would she tell people about me? And then when she's when I was with her, she introduced me, and she had to introduce me. She introduced me as her friend. So there was so much I wrote, you know, about my mother. She she was very she was not the mother I had in mind, but I was very grateful. She looked me up, and if if you know when you read the book, you'll see there are many other things she did. Among them, she she, she vouched that she she went to the you know the state house in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania when Katie was ready to bring me to America, you know. She vouched that she was an American and I was her daughter, 
and therefore I got an American passport. So she did that for me. But I knew nothing about that. Kathy had uh, the 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 nuns at the orphan orphanage knew who she was and where she was at all times, and she gave Kathy permission to adopt me and bring me here. But Kathy kind of communicated only through the nuns, since she was sworn to secrecy to not tell me anything that my mother even existed, so that I ended meeting her only when I was 36, when she came to look me up. So when she passed, my brother said she, you know, she wouldn't tell me anything about my father, no matter how much I asked. I felt so African in all of my bones. I felt African, and I just felt it was so unfair. If I'm going to find a parent, it's going to be the one I identified least with. But at the same, you know, she didn't tell us anything. So when she passed away, my brother decided we should go to Tanzania and look for my father. And it was truly like looking for a needle in a haystack. He hadn't lived there for 45 years. And uh, what he could just recall the, the servants who used to work for them. So, and we, we combed the whole country. There were four or five of them that we, we, we eliminated every single one of them. We came to the last one. We were just eliminating that one too. And then somehow something happened. It's a long, wonderful story. We actually finding him. We ended up finding him. <coughs> I'm sorry. You know, so I found him, and his name was Jeremia Nambu, and that's where I found, I got my, finally I got my real name. Well, beautiful. <laughs> and, the, and the last book, uh, Drumbeats, uh, Heartbeats? Heartbeats, yeah. That is the, I'm sorry, that is the last book. <laughs> the last book yeah. is when is where I go to, to Africa to look for, my, for my, my father. So that is my personal story. But in book two also, I talk in the, in the second book, I talk about my marriage, my children, my work, my teaching. And in book three, of course, I talk a, a lot about, I talk about my divorce, about my illnesses. And as you know, in my childhood, I got malaria. I almost died of typhoid. There, there's so much more happened, you know, into my life apart from my personal search, you know, to be to be long. Well, through this whole story, uh, there seems to be a sense of identity, a search for a sense of identity. And I and w when we first started this interview today, it seemed like it was hinged around your youth. But but now you're telling me that you're meeting your mom as an adult and then you go looking for your dad as an adult and and you, uh there were some real um shifts when you found out your your mother uh was wasn't African and was from America. It seems like through the whole journey uh the the theme of knowing who you are kept getting turned on its head over and over. Over and over and over until the very end, you know. Uh, but uh, I, you know, I, I had this urge, really urge to, to, to just get the basic, the statistics about me, you know, who I was, where I came from, who are my parents, once I had my own children. Because, it, you know, grow, bringing them up, it was very difficult. They asked me so many questions. Why don't you have a mom? Why don't you have a grandma? Why don't you, you know, and, the, and I couldn't answer any of those questions because at that time I didn't know. I, did, I really still didn't, you know, they didn't understand the concept of an orphanage. You know, so uh, after you know, when my mother came into the picture, and then I went looking for my father, I really seemed to have a need to tell my story to my children. I wanted my children. I wanted to stop the cycle of ignorance that I grew up with, with not knowing where I came from. I I felt that if there's anything I could give my children was giving them the knowledge of me. I wanted them to know me the way I never knew me. And I felt if I could give them that, I, I had done something because that was my lifelong search of deciding who I was and what I was doing. I came to very many conclusions that helped me survive, the many tools that helped me go so that I ended up really having a very strong sense of self. But there was still that need, that curiosity of who my parents were and why didn't they want me. And uh, I, I had to, to write my books so that my, it was difficult to tell my children all everything I went through. And, even, and so I didn't. When, 
when they were growing up. And even Kathy, she was just shocked when she read my, my first book. She didn't know three quarters of what was in that book because you just you just can't talk about some of those things. And I talked about them. I dealt with them on every stage with Fat Mary, so I was fine. But when I had to write, I had to relive all of those. And I, I felt this need to, to, to tell my children so so that they, they got, like I said, they got to know me, and in knowing me, they will know more about themselves. Uh, right. And after writing well, my books, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, we just have a few minutes left, so um, I want to, I'd like to get your uh, perspective. Now, if if I'm listening to this program, and I'm struggling with a sense of self, for whatever reason, I don't care why, I feel like I don't connect. I don't. Uh, I feel disconnected. What what nuggets of wisdom would you share with our audience about um, coming up with your own sense of self? Hmm. You know, I you know everybody has a different way of dealing with it, and you know, and one one answer might not work. You know, for for everybody. You know, I, I think to come, you know, the sense of self, I, you just absolutely have to to pull back and get within yourself and really, really try to be who you are and listen to yourself. Everybody has their own Fat Mary. We all have this voice or this place where where we talk to ourselves, where we, we figure out things, things we do not say out in the public. We all have this you know, particular place that we need to go to. So we have to, to take time to know who we are, kind of how we feel about things. And, uh, and that will help us go, I think, from childhood and see the patterns that we have taken, whether we have had a, a traumatic childhood, whether we've had a difficult marriage, whether we've had all of this. I think if we go back and look within ourselves, we, we, will, we will know that we, we have that power, and we, we absolutely cannot let our past define us and tell us who we are. We have to learn to do that for ourselves. No one can tell you who you are. No one can define you. You know, very often people I find live in the past. They think they can't do this because of this. No, every day is a new day. It's a different day. I think we, to, to try to have a sense of self, we have to be ourselves. We have to learn to be ourselves. You can't find a sense of yourself if you just don't even, even know much about you or you haven't had really time to go inside and to, in a way, objectively look at you and then take it all inside and say, this is really who I am, this is how I feel. Uh, and, and to also realize that no matter how you feel, you have the power. You have the power to change. You are in charge of your happiness. You can do something about your situation. We are not completely helpless, and we should not give our power away so other people make us feel worse, other people make us feel who we are not. I cannot tell people how to do that. All I can tell them is how I did it, and I did it by by truly knowing myself and going to that special part of me and living there and visiting it often, not just once in a while. Whenever there's anything traumatic happening, I, I don't go out to, to look for solutions outside. I start within myself. Well, what is my contribution to this? How should I take it? I, I start, but then, then you very slowly start getting a sense of yourself and you start to really trust and respect and love yourself and you start feeling your power to be in charge of your life. Beautifully said. Those are very powerful words. Well, you know, um, an hour can go by pretty fast. We're out of time. I want to thank you for being our guest tonight. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much. I have too. It was nice to talk with Maria Nambu, and the topic tonight has been Africa's Child. Uh, again, her web her web page is Maria Nambu. That's M A R I A N H A M B U dot com. And she's written three books a trilogy. The first book, Africa's Child. The second book is called America's Daughter. 
And the third book is called Drumbeats, Heartbeats. What a powerful story. I mean, the, the way um, her, her perception of herself got turned on its head over and over and over again throughout her whole life. And yet you could hear the vibrance of her voice. You could hear the passion of her story. You could hear the compassion of, of what she's trying to do to, to return to, um, to give back to society, a society she's very grateful for. Hey, I want to thank you, the listener. You've showed up for yourself. You've, you've, dialed into the show and we always try to bring you guests that give you a new perspective towards life. I'm your host Les Jensen. Always a pleasure. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This has been a new human living radio broadcast. You can raise your own personal power with Personal Power Fundamentals Home Study Course at newhumanliving.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.